welcome you formally as the head of the department of politics for the next uh, 31 days. I believe is how long I have to go. And you're going to see the next head of department, Liz Fraser, later in the day. Um, we're a very large department, and uh, to rival almost any department in the world. I was uh, a few years ago at Yale University, where one member of their department said that the great thing about them is that they're, they're, they're like a zoo. They have one of every species. But we're better than that. We have two of every species, <laughs> which means that we can reproduce ourselves while maintaining a huge <laughs> diversity. Um, the difficulty about the day, about, this, about a, a department of this size sometimes is that we don't get to know one another as well as we should. I'm uh, not a political theorist. I work in comparative politics. I don't hear enough of our theorists, and I, I'm really looking forward to a day in which I hear them engaging with real uh, political government and constitutional questions. So without further ado, I think David's going to speak for 40 minutes. I think we all want to have a lot of discussion and engagement with the topic uh, today, so I, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Okay. Morning, everybody. And uh, first thing I have to do is to um, see if I can get my PowerPoint to to work. Uh, right here we go. Um, so I'm going to talk about immigration and what political theory can do to help us think about this issue, which is clearly, in the current climate, one of the top political issues, uh, particularly in the UK, but I think not only in the UK, uh, in, in many other countries in Europe, and actually beyond Europe, too. Um, I was just talking the other day to a student from Ecuador who was talking about the issues about uh, cross-border immigration there from Colombia. So I think it's a worldwide issue. And in, in here, it often ranks in the top three issues when voters are asked about what things concern them most politically at the moment. Immigration, uh, along with the economy and so on, is there right at the top of the list. Of course, just now, uh, there's a particular debate about the impact of opening up the uh, borders of the UK to immigrants from Romania and Bulgaria. But I think that the issue is goes beyond that, and it's a more general, um, it's a more general question. Now, uh, my guess is that not many people in the audience will be Daily Mail readers, um, but uh, the other day, for the first time in my life, I went and bought a copy of the Daily Mail, because they were running, Daily Mail claims that they're actually um, driving Mr. Cameron's views on, uh, on, my, on migration, and uh, here is a... Um, uh, a poll which they commissioned, it's respect, they commissioned it's respectful enough, a poll it's done by the Harris organisation, asking about uh, uh, voters' attitudes to... Can, can you read it at the back? Yeah, sure. Yeah, good. Um, and, uh, well, this, this gives you, I think, a fairly clear picture of the way that uh, voters at the moment think about uh, migration. Um, they have very strong views about the need to uh, keep control over immigration. 80% say the UK government should have the final stay in who comes in. 
They're worried about numbers, about size net migration. 8% think too many uh, have come in over the last year. They're a little bit more, um, there's, there's a more division of opinion on the issue about whether migration has been good or bad and whether it's created problems. There's a strong feeling that it's created problems for uh, the uh, social services, health and so forth, um, but less so on whether it's been necessarily bad for um, local communities and, uh, and so on. So slightly mixed picture there, but, but overall you can see there is a, um, a general attitude of worry, some skepticism, and the wish to retain control over, um, over borders. And so it's not surprising, faced with this sort of evidence, that political parties should engage in a kind of competition to show that they are being firm and tough on the immigration question. So uh, when Mr Cameron the other day was announcing the, uh, the limitations of benefits to these arriving Bulgarians and Romanians, it was interesting that the Labour opposition immediately uh, accused him of not having already been tough enough. So it was, they were sort of bidding, bidding in that direction, um, not, in, not in favour of opening up the borders um, more widely. And uh, you may also remember this episode uh, a few months back um, when this, uh, this, this van was sent around a number of London boroughs in the attempt to persuade illegal immigrants either to go, go away or to fess up and uh, reveal themselves to the authorities. I think one of the more spectacular policy disasters of uh, recent years, even uh, Nigel Farage said that he thought this was a bit crass, which is saying <laughs> <laughs> something. It was, quickly, it was quickly put to bed, and there was, there was quite, like two, maybe two immigrants were proved to have gone home as a result of this, uh, this exercise. So if people like to collect uh, his policy blunders, they might include this in their, in their list. So, so that's one, one side of the immigration picture. Um, voter Skepticism, sometimes outright hostility to large levels of immigration, political parties bidding with each other in order to show that they're, they're tough on this question. But there's another side to it too, uh, and that is the situation of large numbers of people who are seeking to move to Western societies, including European societies, in circumstances of some desperation. They're, they're fleeing from civil war, government breakdown, famine, and so on and so forth. And so here, I'm not thinking so much about the, the Southern Europeans, but about people coming from Somalia, or Libya, or Syria now, or other places uh, from the Middle East and Africa, and wanting to find uh, some kind of refuge in one of the European countries, and so, for example, we had um, these uh, these people coming by boat to the Italian island of Lampedusa in the Mediterranean, and of course there was the tragedy uh, a couple of months back when about 350 of them drowned because one of these creaky old boats uh, just 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 sank off 
of Lampedusa and free swim and so on. So um, now, so you have this other side of, of immigration <coughs> where people are actually trying to migrate in order to avoid dire circumstances uh, where they're coming from. Now, of course, the numbers involved potentially here are very large indeed. If you, if you include not only people who are trying to escape particular circumstances like civil war, but also people who are just trying to escape from dire poverty in sub-Saharan Africa or some countries of the Middle East, then, so to speak, the latent demand for migration is going to be very large indeed. And it's not going to get smaller because even though we can expect, and we can certainly hope, and I think we can expect, that developing countries, number of them, will grow in the future years more, more quickly than uh, rich Western countries, their, their growth rates are now tending to be higher than ours. Nevertheless, the size of the gap actually doesn't decrease. In fact, it increases. You just have to do a little bit of maths, and you think of countries that starts at a high level growing at one or two percent, and a country starting at a very low level growing at, say, five percent. The absolute gap will continue to increase for a while between those uh, two countries. And of course, another factor is that as developing countries begin to uh, grow economically, become, become somewhat wealthier, the number of people who can afford to move will also tend to increase, because migration tends to be not of the very poorest, but of uh, people who can at least afford, for example, to pay for education and therefore can have the kind of skills that would actually make it make, would make sense for them to migrate. The families will, will save up their, their resources and invest them in a son, for example, usually a man who they think uh, you know, can, can migrate overseas and then that'll be the, the making of the family. So uh, it looks as though here we have a fairly stark clash between political realism and moral idealism. That's to say, uh, political realism says that any democratic government that wants to get re-elected is going to have to control its borders tightly. On the other hand, uh, if borders were more open, then many more people worldwide would have the opportunity to live a better life, and I think most people have some kind of sympathetic understanding of the reasons why people would want to move in order to escape from desperate poverty. And so the question is, don't we have obligations to the global poor to give them the opportunity to migrate to better their condition? Many academics would think, would think so. And in fact, I think uh, most academics, by instinct, will tend to favor um, uh, freedom of movement, even for people not in, uh, in desperate circumstances. So we have a, we have a, a dilemma here. The, the democratic arguments for closing borders versus the humanitarian and more idealistic arguments for allowing freedom of movement and especially uh, freedom for the global poor. Now, um, political theory is supposed to be 
to help us in situations like this. It's supposed to help us to think through these kinds of practical dilemmas. What are we going to say about this? But we have a problem because uh, the stock of ideas that we've inherited from the past tradition is mostly a set of ideas about the internal constitution of the state. It's about the relation between the state and its citizens. If you look at the history of political theory, going back to Machiavelli or Hobbes or whoever, what you see is a story about how states relate to their own citizens. Now, of course, there is also, uh, increasingly recently, um, theory of international relations, normative theory of international relations about how states should relate to each other, what their obligations are to one another. And increasingly also, there's some theory of global justice, what, what we owe to people in, uh, in distant lands, what, what our obligations are there. But um, there is very little we have to draw on about the specific relation between a state and a person who wants to join, in, join it, who wants to come in as an immigrant. We don't have a, a lot of theory uh, about this. And for those of you um, who might have been exposed some point to the uh, work of John Rawls, perhaps the most eminent political theorist of the late 20th century, Theory of Justice was a sort of text to which I suspect a number of you would have been exposed during the course of your PP or graduate program in politics. Rawls famously, in his sort of quote, um, made the assumption that the whole theory was a theory designed for effectively a closed society. This, he sort of spells out here the assumptions on which he works, especially the assumption that it's a closed system, no significant relations to other societies, no one enters from without, we're all are born into it to lead a complete life. So the assumption that what we're doing is having a theory for a, for a society whose membership is fixed. Now, um, if we look back um, historically and ask what the sort of underlying assumptions were about the relation of states to people who wanted to move in, generally speaking, the assumption was that the state had a sovereign right to decide entirely at its own discretion who it should accept and who it shouldn't. So in other words, there was an absolute right to control borders. There was no obligation to take anybody in. If somebody was to come in, that was entirely up to the state. On the other hand, in practice, for long periods, movement was relatively free. States were not too bothered about people moving backwards and forwards. There were some exceptions. There were moments. There were various kinds of panics when states became, became anxious that people who were seen as hostile, coming from the wrong sort of place, were going to arrive. And then there would be put in place some controls. But in general, the picture right through the modern period was of, um, uh, of freedom of movement. And some people now, looking back, uh, see, for example, the 19th century as a sort of golden age of freedom of movement. Like, broadly speaking, you could move around. You didn't, you didn't even need a passport. You could just move around without anybody sort of inspecting you at the border. So the movement was broadly free. 
But I think that part of the reason for that, the reason why states could, on the whole, despite claiming rights of sovereignty, allow the movement to be free, was that they didn't offer very much to people who arrived. So there's a little quote which I always think is rather, well, it illustrates this. Uh, Chartist in, in 1848, the exiles free to land upon our shores and free to perish in hunger beneath our intense skies. So you can really don't expect anything uh, when you get here. And um, even a uh, liberal um, political philosopher like Henry Sidgwick, Cambridge Law School, one of the um, last uh, political theorists to be able to survey the whole of the area, the whole of the area of politics from a philosophical perspective and write a kind of overall uh, work, the elements of politics. I had, had this to say, which I think is an interesting, again, um, illustration. This is, this is late 19th century, uh, view about um, the state's obligations to incomers. So, what you're saying is states have absolute right to admit or not admit aliens, and it can treat them pretty much as it likes. Except, and he has one qualification, once you do take them in, you've got to treat them fairly by um, not suddenly imposing on them some conditions they weren't expecting. At least you've got to give them a chance to leave, uh, so um, give them due warning. But the general um, position here is, and this is a liberal speaking, that uh, states can, can adopt whatever policy they like in relation to immigrants. Now, I think that what, um, what changed this over the course of the 20th century was the growth of democracy and the welfare state. And I think it's no accident that the first measures uh, uh, restricting immigration, the first actual um, legislative measures, were enacted in the first years of the 20th century. So we had, to, in, in this country, the Aliens Act of 1906, which was mainly um, directed at Jewish emigrants from the Baltic region. There's some panic about the arrival of too many uh, Jewish migrants. But I think, uh, as, and as the century progressed, the thinking behind this was that now people who came in had to be treated as future citizens with voting rights and also as uh, potential contributors to and beneficiaries from the welfare state as it emerged over the course of the century. And so um, immigration then began to raise questions both about national identity, uh, what, it, what it was to be a member of the society, and also um, questions about the implicit social contract which underpins, I should want to argue, the welfare state. So I think it's, one should see the, the whole development of a welfare state as resting upon a kind of contract which I think you can uh, spell out roughly as follows that people are expected to contribute by working, paying taxes, and then they can draw benefits when they need to, either they lose their job or they need health care and so on. And uh, so it's a sort of 
system of reciprocity in which everybody both some points pays in, other points draws out. Now, on the other hand, the, <coughs> the terms of that implicit contract can't be strictly enforced. Of course, you can to some extent. You can impose, for example, work requirements on the receipt of benefits. But by and large, it works on the basis that people are willing to play fair. That's to say, if they don't claim benefits they're not entitled to, they do try to seek work when they have the opportunity, they put in their tax returns honestly, and so on and so forth. Now, underneath the, the formal legal requirements, uh, there is uh, an assumption that people are willing to comply voluntarily with the contract. And that also means, point three, that you must trust that other people are going to do their part. So if you fill your tax return honestly, it's on the assumption that by and large other people are doing it as well. You observe the benefit system, play it fairly, it's on the basis that other people are not trying to cheat. So there has to be trust in the system. And then uh, we um, have to face up to the issue about circumstances in which uh, trust can be manifested. And there's quite a lot of evidence that cultural diversity in a society poses problems for mutual trust. And especially, I think, when it's not just indivi sort of individual level diversity, but it's community diversity. In other words, separate communities um, inhabiting in the same society, physically separated from one another, not interacting very much. The effect of that tends to be uh, a diminution both in trust across the communities between people and also to some extent trust in government. So, so, so trust levels are affected by um, uh, perceptions and, and feelings of cultural diversity. So, so immigration then poses, really poses two problems for the, um, the implicit social contract. One is that it tends to create uh, greater degrees of diversity, more separation between people, insofar as the immigrants have different cultural backgrounds from the indigenous majority. And it also raises problems because um, at the time of arrival, they have not yet uh, played their part in the, in the contribution side of the social contract. And there's sort of a lot of evidence that people are anxious about people arriving, have not yet contributed, but for example, drawing out Benefits. Now, um, of course, all of this depends a lot on uh, the level of immigration, the rate of arrival, and also on the rate of integration, because uh, cultural diversity in itself may not be a problem, so long as immigrants integrate and uh, establish social connections, various kinds, live together with indigenous people engage in social interactions, work together and so on and so on, attend the same schools and so on and so forth. Now, <clears throat> sometimes it's argued that um, these, these sort of potential problems that I'm pointing to with the, uh, the welfare state contract are actually offset by the economic gains from immigration. 
Uh, now, this is a very detailed, complicated subject. Um, story is quite quite complex. Who gains and who loses from immigration? But overall, and here I'm partly relying on my colleague Paul Collier, who's just written a book about this. Um, broadly speaking, the economic impact of immigration is neutral. There's, there's no big effect in either direction. It does have distributive consequences. Some, some groups gain from it, some groups lose from it. Broadly speaking, um, low-skilled workers are, are likely to be the, the main losers. But the overall impact is, is, is fairly neutral. <coughs> so if we stick to the uh, what I call the political realist perspective and just look at the impact of immigration on the receiving society, and assuming, this is obviously an assumption, that that society wants to retain its collective identity, its communal identity, wants to, 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 to continue to have its historic cultural character, and also that it wants to uh, uphold the, the welfare state contract, then I think um, what you would aim for if you're crafting an immigration policy from this perspective would be one that had a relatively low rate of immigration, that it would select people who could make uh, a positive contribution to the economy through their skills and so on, and also people who would be likely to integrate relatively easily would be unlikely to uh, perform what are sometimes called parallel societies within the society. So that would be the sort of picture you would, you would have. But now let's look at the other side of the picture, which is to say, look, let's look now at the claims of the immigrants. I've looked, looked at it from the point of view of the receiving society. What are our moral obligations to immigrants? Well, I think it might be helpful to start by asking what our legal obligations are under international law. And I think the first thing to say is there is no general right to immigrate. There isn't such a thing as a right to migrate. Um, well, you can't, as an individual, just sort of identify the country you'd like to go to and claim a right to move there. What you do have uh, is a right, this is um, part of the original UN Declaration has been reaffirmed in international law. You have a right to leave your country and a right to re-enter it. If you're a national of a particular country, you leave and you must be readmitted to that same country. Also, you have the right to apply for asylum in another country. Now, there's a question about who can, uh, what, are, what are the conditions under which asylum um, can, be, can be granted. There are different there's a, there's a long and elaborate argument about who exactly um, counts as a, a refugee for that purpose. Um, so let me just give you a couple of the sort of definitions of who counts as a refugee. First from the Geneva Convention, which defines being a refugee pretty narrowly, actually, in terms of somebody who uh, is living with a well-founded fear of persecution in the place that they uh, currently are and uh, can't therefore return to that place owing to the fear. Um, so that 
focuses quite narrowly on people who are being sort of targeted by their own governments on grounds of race, religion, and so on and so forth. There's a slightly wider definition that the um, United Nations High Commission uses, uh, which actually would include people who are fleeing, for example, from civil war situations in which they're not necessarily being uh, directly targeted, but they're just living in a state of social breakdown and generalized violence. So there are these um, different, wider and narrower uh, conception of what it, what it means to be a refugee. And then the question would be, well, supposing somebody meets one of these definitions, wider or narrower, what are the obligations of a state towards a refugee? <coughs> and uh, these really are summed up in the uh, principle of non-refoulement, which says basically you cannot send a refugee back to the place from which they fled, the place they're fleeing for their lives, from the place in which they're dangerous being persecuted. You can't return them to that place. But that principle, which is an important principle of international law, is subject to uh, certain limitations. The first, which is practically very important, of course, is that state, states can prevent people from lodging an asylum claim in the first place by preventing them from reaching their borders. And they do that by requiring ships, uh, aircraft, and so on to uh, certify that the people they're carrying have got a visa appropriate for them to land and so on. So they pose liability on airlines to stop potential asylum seekers reaching their borders. And the other thing is that um, even refugees who reach the border can be sent on to third countries. You don't have to accept them. You mustn't return them, but you can send them on. This applies particularly, uh, for example, to, uh, to ships carrying refugees who arrive at ports, and states can actually say, no, we're not going to let you land. You've got to move on somewhere else. And there are some uh, famous historic stories, rather tragic stories, about what happened as case from, the, from 1939 when uh, a large shipload of Jewish refugees um, tried to enter Cuba and was then sort of passed around through various refused entry by Cuba, by the US, came back to Europe and uh, referees were, referees were eventually dispersed to countries such as the Netherlands and uh, Belgium where in fact they were not in the end safe. That wasn't foreseen, but in fact that was the outcome. So, um, it's not anything like a, um, an absolute uh, obligation to take people in. That's the situation. The question is, how should we think about this from a moral, ethical point of view? Is there a general duty to admit immigrants? Well, I think if you said that there was a, just a general duty to admit any immigrant who applied to you, that would only make sense if you held a strong cosmopolitan view which says that the state really has as great an obligation to outsiders as it does to its own citizens. And I think the problem is that once you adopt such a strong position, you actually begin to call into question 
the very existence of the state system as such. That's a very radical view. If we can say that the world of states, by its very nature, offends against some uh, general moral obligation that we have to human beings everywhere. Now, um, we can talk about this in discussion, uh, but I'm not going to uh, adopt, I'm not going to explain why I think that kind of perspective is wrong. I'm going to keep the focus a bit more narrowly on the issue of refugees and immigrants. And I think you can talk about this issue without adopting that very strong uh, cosmopolitan view. So um, in the case of refugees, I think what's important is that their human rights are at risk by remaining where they currently are. And the issue then is uh, whether the state on that account has an obligation to admit them. Well, I think that, the, that obviously the complicating factor here is that the obligation in question is one that falls upon states in general, not on a particular state. Somebody's a refugee, somebody being from Somalia, all countries that could take them in have some kind of responsibility towards that person. But then the issue is, well, how does that responsibility become particularized to a given country? One right by this country rather than that. One thing would be to let the refugees themselves make that choice by applying to a particular country. But that's a fairly arbitrary way of distributing the obligation. Predictably, uh, refugees are going to find some countries more attractive than others. There's no reason to think they're going to come to distribute themselves around in uh, a relatively even way. So uh, can we think of any principles that might help us here? Well, I think you can say that there is a sort of, here are some sort of notions of what a fair division of responsibility might look like in this sort of case. Um, so two sets of considerations. One looks backward and says, let's think about why people are refugees and whether states have contributed to the circumstances that produce refugees and if so do they have a special responsibility towards those refugees i think we're going to hear um second talk today some more discussion about the idea of historic responsibilities and uh, what they amount to but then sort of another set of considerations um, can we say that states that are better able to receive refugees find it less costly to do so, have a greater obligation to do it? This might depend on a number of factors, size of the territory, number of people, level of GDP, and so on and so on. Now, um, of course, these are just general principles, and so how do you apply them concretely? And I think think about this, you soon reach the conclusion that what you need is some international system for directing uh, refugee flows that could actually implement this sort of principle. So well, actually this country would take this number of refugees, that country another number. Of course, um, whether it's going to be possible to create such a system is going to depend on the willingness of states to allow such a body to make these decisions. And alas, I think it has, this has some of the same 
features as the intractable issue of climate change. It has those features because I think states looking at this, even if they could accept it in general terms, are going to want to claim that you know they have uh, they can deny historic responsibility. They're going to argue that for special reasons it's going to be very <coughs> difficult for them to accept refugees. This is going to be contested, and it seems to me rather unlikely that actually an international body will be able to be created, even though I think that is what, from the point of view of theory and fairness, you would actually want to see in this case. So what are states uh, allowed to do where there is no such system, which is the current, the current state of affairs? Well, I think that they're entitled then to act on their own best judgments, sincerely made, of what their fair share of the refugee responsibility should be. And I think also um, that they're permitted to make bilateral arrangements with other states to house refugees in return for transfer payments. So at the moment, um, refugee distribution worldwide is very uneven. There are huge numbers in places, for example, like Pakistan, quite out of proportion to any principle of fairness. And what I'm saying is that that it sounds almost certainly isn't acceptable, but it might become so if other states were to make large contributions to Pakistan to help them sort out uh, this problem. It does make practical sense often for refugees, particularly those uh, who are only refugees on a relatively short-term basis, to move to states that are close to their states of origin. There are sort of the reasons, conditions of life there are more similar it becomes easier for them to move back uh, once if the situation does indeed resolve in their home country. So there is some argument for um, some kind of transfer system that would allow refugees to be housed in countries close to where they come from. Having said that, uh, I think um, it's also important that refugee status should not become permanent. In other words, it's acceptable for somebody to be housed, for example, in a temporary camp for a short while. If they're going to stay in that place for many years, then it's important that they should have opportunities to become fully, have full legal resident status. They should be able to advance to citizenship in due course. In other words, permanent refugee status is not, I think, ethically acceptable. So if you were to follow those principles, then States would have to do much more for refugees than they're now doing. So although the level of moral idealism is less here than it would be if you thought that it required completely open borders, it's still considerable. So if you're going to convince those daily mail readers that it's, it's, it's justifiable um, to admit refugees, I think there has to be a system for admitting them that's much more transparent and much, much quicker, actually, than the current system. I think, you know, with a certain amount of justification, people now regard asylum claims as often fraudulent or as attempts to jump the, uh, the immigration queue, and some asylum seekers are complicit in that. Uh, in that exercise by, for example, destroying documents that they have that would 
enable admitting people to decide where they come from. On the other hand, so there's some sort of suspicion about the motive of some asylum seekers. I do think that when people witness tragedies like the Lampedusa boat sinking, they do respond to that and recognize that there are really uh, humani big humanitarian issues with the, uh, the current setup. So I think if there are any policymakers present here today, the challenge seems to me in this area is to develop policies um, that you know, capture that willingness of people to respond when lives are in danger and people are just going to die if they're not given some kind of refuge. Well, on the other hand, policies that can uh, limit the overall volume of immigration to what the, the uh, host society and the implicit social contract can actually handle. So let me just, I'm just going to uh, conclude what I think is a sort of, um, seems to me a coherent position on this question, then we can have lots of discussion, people can disagree and uh, put forward alternatives, but so conclusion, four points. First of all, that in general, states are entitled to close their borders, they do have good reason to restrict immigration flows, and they also have good reason to prefer immigrants who are going to uphold the uh, welfare state contract. So that's the sort of starting point. That's the political realist starting point. On the other hand, they also have obligations to refugees. First of all, not to return them to places where their lives are going to be at risk, not to send them back to, to, to Syria or to Somalia or wherever. And also, I think, uh, to do their part in addressing the global refugee problem, to admit their fair share of refugees, at least on a temporary basis, because I think that uh, refugee status should be seen as something that is of limited term. On the other hand, again, uh, well, that isn't the case, where refugees can't return to countries of origin within a reasonable length of time, I don't know what that is, maybe three or four years, maybe, perhaps a bit more, perhaps a bit less, you could debate about that. They can't return, if the situation persists, then they should be entitled to apply for permanent residence and eventually the citizenship. It's not acceptable to have an ongoing uh, class of people who are just in the society but have no proper status within it. That's my view. And then I think, and this is in some ways the sting of the tail, that these obligations to, to take in refugees must, I think, be discharged first before other possibly more desirable immigrants are accepted. Because if, uh, for example, as the UK now seems to want to do, you set some kind of overall target for net immigration, put a figure on it, then you're going to have to make choices about whether to take in you know, a refugee from Somalia or a computer programmer from China or India, who might be very desirable as an economic contributor. But uh, it seems to me, thinking about it from the perspective at least of political theory, 
these obligations take precedence. So in the first Playfair by refugees, before we can go into the business of selecting some of the immigrants that we might want to take for economic or other reasons. Good, I think I'll stop at that point and invite discussion. Thank you very much.